Welcome to a brand new episode of Full Metal RPG. I'm your host, Brendan Carrion. When I say it's a brand new episode, it's kind of a little bit of a misnomer there. This episode's actually really, really old. Uh, today, we have a little bonus episode. This is an interview that I did with game designer Christopher Gray in Los Angeles uh, in November of 2017. I kid you not. So, um... Uh, you listen to this 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 uh, audio, and if it turns out that maybe there's some stuff in here that seems kind of dated or sort of like, uh, you know, not necessarily like it's on the cutting edge of role playing, that's why because I somehow managed to wait until we're closer to the next November than the last November in order to get it out. So that's on me, uh, and I just want to extend an apology to Christopher for that. He was uh, super rad, had me over to his house. We played Dungeons and Dragons with his group. Um, I had a really good time. And then afterwards, he and I did this little interview. And um, as I was driving back to where I was staying that evening, this is over the Thanksgiving weekend, I just felt this crazy cold coming down over me. And then I spent the next two or three days basically just sleeping. Uh, Interestingly, when I touched base with him later, it turned out the same thing happened to him. So we were both kind of carrying something. Something was going going around and uh, um, conked me out bad. And to be totally honest, I don't know that I ever really <laughs> recovered from that until um, sometime around the end of January. Uh, but we're kind of getting to this little phase now where we've got some of these older episodes that I've been meaning to release. First one on deck is Christopher Gray. He is the author and creator of Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, and um, I'm really happy that we got to spend some time together talking and playing, and without any further ado, here is my interview with the one, the only, Christopher Gray, Thanksgiving weekend, 2017. Welcome back to a bonus episode of Full Mail RPG. I'm your host, Brendan Carrion, and today... I have the very special privilege of recording in the backyard of my friend and fellow gamer, Christopher Gray. What up? Hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming all the way out here. Oh, dude, this has been super great. Super great. It's great. It's great to have you. I'm glad we're in our yard and enjoying a nice afternoon in Southern California. Yeah, no shit, man. This is like, like, like not to be like getting in the grills of other people who are experiencing like real winter and stuff as <laughs> we're like getting into global warming and crap, but it's like what in the seventies we're surrounded by like tropical plants and like blue skies. It's like totally LA. I mean, Oh man, this is, and we, we played back here this afternoon. You yeah. ran a session of your, your Dungeons and Dragons game. I yeah. got to sit in on it. It has been a whole afternoon of like ding la role playing yeah yeah we get to role play out in the yard you know i'd complain but no one would listen <laughs> what's there to complain about man this is like paradise this is paradise this has been really fun you can't do this in phoenix you can't do this in phoenix. no you'd melt or your shoes would yeah yeah well i mean your skin would literally start to like blister yeah. on, like, as you were playing as you fried in the sun i mean it's it's an inhospitable environment but you learned that when you were at crit hit this last summer yeah that right? that's that's where we met crit hit was great i plan to go back i'm waiting for the kickstarter really when is the kickstarter uh jim Jan jim jim Jim, January probably. Jim usually runs the Kickstarter. Gym. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was really cool because it was intimate, mm -hmm. but there was still a lot of things going on. You know, and I got to sit at Shane's table, or you yeah. know, for Savage Worlds, I got to sit at Sean's table for Rifts, 
and uh, it was just—it was really—I mean, it was amazing. And then to get to be in 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 that space with all of those great people, and then you know, lots of time to hang out and get to know everyone. It was really cool. Having seen your Savage Worlds collection now, I know that that means something to you in yes. particular. That that must have been great. That must have yes. been great. I don't get to play it enough. I mean, I love Savage Worlds. I love chucking dice and taking names. <laughs> And that's the thing about about running and GMing and creating is it's like kind of like the the shoemaker's children go barefoot or whatever. It's like you spend all this time creating games for others, but you have very little time to game for yourself, huh? Yeah, that's true. And I, um, as a designer, I'm not. I'm very system agnostic. I, I think my heart is probably always going to be with D and D. That's okay. where I started. But um, I love Powered by the Apocalypse. I love Savage Worlds. I love Fate. Uh, you see my collection. I've got a little bit of everything. Yeah, um, yeah, I, you are across of the range. <laughs> oh, and, and Chronicles of Darkness, even. I have the whole yeah. line. Uh, but, you know, I, I like to find the system that's right for the story. And so there are so many stories that I want to tell, and there are so many systems to choose from. It's It's become sort of an obligation to learn what's out there. Because what if I'm telling the story in the wrong system? Uh, and, and then I end up having to uh, rewrite it in the right system, just happened to me mm-hmm. so uh yeah I, 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 I am definitely system agnostic and uh i try i'm not mastery of any of them but i like to know at least how they work so let's kind of rewind for our listeners just a little bit in case they don't know who you are let's kind of introduce let's introduce you um maybe kind of like tell us a little bit of your bona fides kind of like what how long you've been in the hobby what some of your favorite games are and then kind of tell us about what you're doing now like what's what's the newest the newest shit because spoilers people Chris, Chris is on Kickstarter and he's Kickstarted a PBTA game, so we're gonna get we're gonna get to that. But so where 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 are you from? Where well, you I from? studied at Juilliard. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I uh, I started back in the '90s uh, with everyone else, early '90s as a teenager. I think um, I, I I have a hard time remembering my first game, which is really weird for me, as I know a lot of people talk about their first game like it's this big moment in their life, and yeah. it, w- it wasn't like that for me. I don't really remember it. I know that it was uh, AD&D 2. Okay. And I know that because um, I, I remember the monster manual very clearly because my uh, dungeon master said I was not allowed to look at it. And uh, and that's when I was like, no, I could be a dungeon master. And so I started running games. And it was, it was just in, I don't know, middle school or something. But where I was in Denver, where I grew up, there wasn't a lot of choices. I mean, I could go to the B. Dalton bookstore Mm-hmm. Or the what was the game store called? Uh, there was a chain that was always in the malls. Were you near a college? No. No. Okay, no. so you were just going right I to was the in the w- suburbs. It was like the chain bookstores that yeah. had those little tiny sections of role playing for the nerds, right? Right. Kind right. Of by the science fiction books. Yeah, and they would cover them up too. So anyway, so my choices were Dungeons and Dragons, uh huh, or Rift. That was it. Okay. Uh, and then uh, later on, Werewolf came out, and things started changing a bit. But for a long time, those were the choices. And I didn't want to be with the nerds. I wasn't a nerd. <laughs> and I, I didn't, it's not like I wore a fedora to school or anything. I mean, I, maybe I did, but <laughs> uh, I didn't want, I mean, so we, we always wanted to go with the cool one, which was riffs, right? And my friends and I, uh, and we played riffs for a long time. And it was, I know there are some riffs lovers out there, but I mean, really, it was a terrible game. It was a lot of a lot of bad dice mechanics. We have to acknowledge that now, right? Yeah, as yeah. cutting edge as it seemed at the time, in terms of its content. Yes, in it, content. It, it was really like it was. It was. A, it's a bad game. Yeah, as, as yeah. a game, it was. It, you, you know, and, and what was bad was that I, I made my own version for a space opera. 
Okay. That, that my kids, my, my kids, my, my friends and I were uh, were playing the space opera. We played all the way through college. Yeah. And, my, and it's still around. Actually, if you go to um, uh, basilicus.org, B-A-S-I-C, I can't even spell it. Uh, uh, basilicus.org you'll find it and those are the remains it's a wiki the remains of that old homebrew system that we no ran shit. Seriously? for years yeah and it's, uh, it was just classic space opera but I took the wrist rules and I made them worse I was like, <laughs> there weren't enough skills so I made more and you had to contest the skills with each other's skills so you had to like roll this skill with that skill it was d20 versus d20 and you didn't go up in experience anymore you had to add how many times did you roll that skill now the skill can go up it got ridiculous and that's the game we played. We loved it. And well, it sounds sounds like you had a good time with it. Yeah, it was terrible. And then um, and then later I realized, much later, that Traveler existed the whole time, and I could have saved. <laughs> but is a Traveler really a space opera, though? Traveler well, is more it just can like be. it's like it's like gritty dudes in jumpsuits in space, like like hauling you know junk or something. That's right? That's true. That's true. It could have been the way we played it. It could have. Been. Our, we were basically playing Firefly. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it was. Sweeping though, you know, and epic sure. in its scale, and so that was my start, you know. And we just did it for fun, and we tried to lay it out and stuff, and we never, we didn't know what we were doing, so we didn't do it. And then everybody moved away, and we all grew up. Um, and I, I sort of fell out of games just because I couldn't find a group, um, and fell into MMOs for a long time. Oh, dude, brutal. Yeah, and after like the fifth year of um, sitting in a bar and brooding with other avatars, I was thinking, you know. I used to be somebody. <laughs> I used to, you know, I used to go on adventures. I don't know what this is. And uh, and then I, I came back to the hobby because after my kid was getting old enough and I wanted to play games with him. Yeah. I brought him into the store and we picked up Dungeons and Dragons and I fell right back in. Um, so I haven't really been. What edition of of D and D was this? That was fifth. Oh, so okay. So, so this is the last yeah. three three years. Three years or so. Three ish. Yeah. And before that, I was doing a lot of uh, novel writing and you know, uh, things like that, and and I just did, I just fell back into games because um, of Roll Twenty because I could get back in. I found a community and, and started running with it, and then I just, just realized all that had happened while I was gone, and uh, everything was so much better than it was before, and. Um, and then I became ravenous, and I, I, I got every game I could get my hands on. And, and my kid's a sport. He'll play them with me. And then I got my Roll20 group, and I've got my face-to-face group now, and, and everything's coming up roses. Dude, it's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, yeah. it's like it's one of those things where um, it's kind of like that positive momentum. Like, once you start doing things, it creates energy, which, like, brings more people in, and then you've got tons of stuff to do, and then you, and then you start, like, getting on the other side of the curve, and you've got no time, yeah. you've got no energy, you know? Right, There's right. more that you want to do, but you can't do it, right? Yeah, and I and the people that I'm meeting along the way are just great people in the industry. Um I'm going to all the cons that I can go to. In Los Angeles, we're blessed. We get three cons a year. And they, not, not bad cons no, either. They're, they're pretty cons. decent. And they're mostly indie. Um, there's a huge Adventure League presence, very big. And they do really good work, and they do a lot of convention-created content. It's excellent, excellent work. Uh, but when you go upstairs, it's all indie. And it's you know basically ruled by the Happy Jacks guys, and they bring in all of their crazy games and... Um, and that's how I learned it. You know, and I met, yeah, uh, I met uh, a lot of people there that that are all in the independent world. And I learned real quick where where the fun was. Um, I still love my D and D, but man, the things you can do on the indie level. Yeah, agreed, agreed. We'll get we'll get to that in just a second, though. Uh, first, I want to talk about you have a few modules that you kind of did on um, DM's Guild, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Well, how did you get into that? Well, I I saw that DM's Guild existed. 
And I said, oh, great, an outlet. And I'm a publisher uh, by trade. I, um, You're a publisher yeah, by trade. Yeah, it, it, as, as more a hobby because I never really, I always broke even on it. I never really made a lot of money on it. Tell me more. Well, um, back about 2008 or so, my wife uh, wrote a book. And we thought, you know, we're having trouble getting this published. Why don't we try? I'd like to get into publishing anyway. Let's, let's put your book out there and see how it's done. And we started The Way Things Are Publications. And that and her book came out. That was The Tree Museum. That was her first book. And then we learned along the way. Uh, and we picked up about 12 titles over the course of a number of years. Wow. And um, they were all decent. Um, very good books, but decently published. Um, learned a lot. And I basically have shuttered that as I'm moving more into games. And my wife has moved on to an actual real publisher, you know, and she, her book, uh, The Laird Baylor, just was put out, and she has another one coming out next wonderful, year. Wonderful, wonderful. So we're, we're pretty immersed in that world, and, and I'm pretty immersed in marketing. My day job is marketing. So I, um, I found this great confluence of skills. As I'm a writer, I'm a publisher, I'm a marketer. Um, I know how all these things come together for games. And that's the only thing I want to do with those skills now. I mean, I think that uh, it's where I'm meant to be. I feel like I'm on my path and it's not a very profitable one, but I'm okay with that. It's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a passionate one. I think it's the best way to tell stories and I pull stories through screenplays, through plays, through books. Games are the best way for me to tell my stories. And, uh, and so that's where I'm going to be for a while. So, so tell me about that. Like, um, elaborate on that thought so that, so that our listeners can kind of get your perspective on that idea. Uh, storytelling is, um, has, I think, in human history been a collaborative experience. Um, when the printing press was created, uh, we all started having this sort of unidirectional storytelling where this is my story, I'm going to tell you. And we all relish in that. But there's this, this idea of us telling a story together, which is as old as time. And I think those are the best stories. You know, the, when you think about the plays you like the most or the movies you like the most, I mean, a lot of the times they're ensemble. It's a, multiple people came together to create that experience. You know, they're not, it's not just one person's vision. And uh, we're better as a pack. And so when we do games, we are, we are using each other's minds and creativity uh, in force together to create something much bigger than you are and much bigger than any story you could tell. And that happens uh, in OSR, and that happens in White Wolf, and it happens across the board, doesn't matter the game. So I just think it's a more um, authentic form of storytelling. I love movies, I love plays, I love books, but I love the experience that comes out of, out of games more. I hear you. I hear you on all those levels. Like sometimes it's fun to just sit down with a novel and like experience somebody's like mastery of language and the way that they move you through the beats, like A to B to C. You know what I'm saying? Maybe they surprise you or something. Um, but even when you're talking about movies and television, those are intensely collaborative mediums, right? Sure. You know. Sure. And um, some movies more so than others. I mean, when you look at like <clears throat> an Ocean's Eleven, you know, versus a a Bourne movie. Mm-hmm. You can tell where, uh, you know, the Brad Pitts and the George Clooney's left their mark. Uh, and, and so <clears throat> I, I view a lot of the structure games more as ensemble experiences. I had a good direction in our game this afternoon. I kind of knew where, where you were going and what you were going to do. Um, I knew the end result, but I didn't know what was going to happen along the way. And that's what I love about games. Yeah. And then the independent games, I don't even know what's going to happen. At the, I have no idea what's going to happen. Oh, yeah. 
That, that's been one of the things that's been hardest for me to kind of like let go of is the script when you're playing an independent game because there's like so much more power is just delegated to the players, you know? And on some level that's great because Game Master prep goes from being like hours every week to like an hour. You if know? that, right? If that, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you just really don't know. You just yeah. really don't know what's going to happen. Uh, on the other hand, it gives me that kind of giddiness of anticipation again. Like when you very first get started GMing, where you're like, oh, shit, am I going to be able to roll with it? Am I going to be able to handle what these guys throw at me? Because the world is just so so wide open at that point. Yeah. Um, when, I, and, uh, when I did Happiest Apocalypse on Earth, which was my Kickstarter this last summer, uh, we're going to be fulfilling it hopefully as soon as December but probably January uh, the one of the constructs in there was I, I had to pull back from this D&D mindset of you are in a world reacting to what the world does and so there is a mechanic in that game that actually where you actually create the park as a group as a table yeah and you decide what the dangers are basically and I've run it that way at cons there are incidents that I have in there too, which are really just prepackaged scenarios that you can pull out and play. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But the the way it's designed is you actually don't know going in what's in it. So I'll play that at con. We spend about forty five minutes talking about the characters, the park, and everything in it, and then I just do what they set up. Um, and it it was scary at first, but I trusted the game, and I trusted the uh, vision behind Power by the Apocalypse, and I just ran with it. And and every time I run it. Um, it's completely different and exciting and interesting and I've never found myself out of water because I can always go back to the players and ask them questions about what they're doing. So so let's rewind just for a second and kind of t- uh, introduce our listeners if they're not familiar with Happiest Apocalypse on Earth. Kind of like just give them the pitch. Tell them, tell, them, tell them what it is and maybe give us a little bit of history on, on how it was written and kickstarted and where you're at with it now. Yeah, yeah, I kind of skipped over that. Uh, it's, it's all good, buddy. It's a... Um, it's a Powered by the Apocalypse game, which is Vincent Baker's uh, amazing innovation in game design, uh, which is narrative-driven. Um, and it's about the, uh, uh, you know, a, a, about a Lovecraftian Disneyland, you know, or a children's theme park. Um, there are some definite references to many of the theme parks that we know. And the, the game is just exploring either as a, as a member of the staff of the park or guests that come and have to experience the dark, horrible terror that lies just beneath the surface of Mouse Park. And uh, it yields a lot of uh, satire, but it also yields a lot of good old-fashioned horror. Um, Most of the games I play end up having uh, some sort of demonic animatronic after you. And uh, and there's just a lot of, you know, and I I kind of address the, the horror with, uh, just unblinking. I, we are going all out with this. You know, you are you are going to witness some really terrible, terrible things in this very, very funny environment, and um, and it's just it's just a lot of fun. I mean, I I, I found it to be very um, cathartic to just kind of play out all of these, uh, you know, taking innocence and just putting it on its head. I think that's an interesting uh, word that you bring into that, cathartic, because that has been my experience with other PBTA games, is that they are intensely cathartic. Isn't that isn't that strange? Because I can't say I ever had a cathartic experience playing World of Darkness. I played it for years, you know, and I've never had a cathartic experience playing D&D. 
but you get behind the wheel of a PBTA game, and all of a sudden, like, weird stuff from your past and from your deep emotions, like, real shit that you want to resolve, actually starts working its way into gameplay. Yeah, that's interesting. I think some games do it better than others. Monster Hearts is on point for that. Um, when you start getting onto the satire side, what ends up happening is you just want to drive the bus off the bridge and see where it goes you know you, you're not you're no longer uh, restricted by the safety of your character or your identity you're you're more invested in the story and what happens so you're okay with falling off the ferris wheel if that means the story is awesome i mean we can't do that in ddd we have our numbers our stats it's true uh, and one of the one of the big changes I made at the Happiest Apocalypse when I was, I was it's kind of late in the game I was I was revising it and looking at some of my language about harm because the way it works in my game is you can take uh, physical harm or you can take psychological shock which is a mechanic ripped completely out of the pages of, of, of Monster of the Week and I really liked how that worked um, but I was talking in in the in the narrative about how lethal this game is you're not monster hunters you're not policemen you're not military you're not heroes you're just slubs you're, you're you work at the park yeah or you're, or you're a guest yeah you're some dude you're some vacation. Guy. yeah so it's not like you're going to have a gun or any kind of useful tool at all uh your your primary tactic is going to be run and get away so the game has got to be lethal and i realized that i designed it so that it wasn't lethal that you were a hero mm. Okay. So I I scaled back the 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 the, the harm um, capacity way back, and you really you're dead if you're hit three times, you know. It, it, with that level of of intensity on on your character being removed from the game, um, you suddenly play in a different way. And when I when I going all the way back to what I was talking about catharsis, it's like it, it's you're playing out what ifs. You know, you're in a very realistic environment playing a realistic person but extremely unrealistic and horrifying things are happening to you. So you can kind of play that out. What would you do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now, what was the genesis of this concept? Where did you first decide to write it? Like, what, what were you doing when the idea hit you? Well, I was, I was playing Monster of the Week, um, and usually with my kid, I'll just let him check what, what we do. And I said, Monster of the Week. Okay, so what do you want to do? And we're this is we're gonna we're gonna chase some monsters. What where, what do you want to where do you want to play? And he said, I want to play in Disneyland. And that's when the light bulb went off. And I'm like, really, monsters at Disneyland? And then he stopped and he said, but with Cthulhu. <laughs> oh, that's Chris Gay's kid. <laughs> he <was a> young... <laughs> but he said that. I was like, that's amazing. That is a really good idea. And he has been with me the whole way. He's really helped me conceive the game. I've tested things on him, you know, and he, yeah, he's just this little kid, but he gets it. His, his mother's a horror writer, so that might have something to do with it. Oh, great. <laughs> cool. Cool. Um, now, earlier, before we got the mics rolling, we were talking about how uh, PBTA can feel very, um, like, one-shotty. Like, how do you approach that? Do you think PBTA is built in such a way that it has to be one-shotty? Do you think that it has the capacity for campaign play? Uh, how did you approach that with your writing? Yeah, I think it tends to be one-shotty, if not uh, short campaigns. Um, and I, I don't really have a logic for that. I think the way that it, it's, it's, it's built to be... Uh, about a particular experience. In literature, we, we talk about whether, is this an Iliad or is this an Odyssey? 
um, if it's an Iliad, you're, you're, you're a media res in the battle, you're a start and a finish, and it's over. An Odyssey, you're going on, you're Lord of the Rings crossing the continent. Um, and I think there's something about the way PBTA plays that's more Iliad. And there can be three, four chapters in an Iliad, but it's really hard, to, unless you're starting a new arc. Yeah. It's really hard to continue it past that. I think that Monster of the Week does really well with this sort of, uh, it's Monster of the Week. So, you know, this week we're dealing with this monster. That Next week we're dealing with that monster. Yeah. I think Monster Hearts does it better too because it's much more person-focused than story-focused. And as long as the characters have drama, you'll always have a story to tell. Uh, but there are some games like mine, uh, which really don't lend itself very well to a campaign. Um, you can do it if it's episodic. Like, oh, yep, another week in Mouse Park. Here we are. You know, this happened. And that, that works great if you're playing a uh, member of the staff. Mm-hmm. But if you're a guest, I mean, you're not coming back. You know, right. it's over for you. <laughs> Something horrible happened. Now, so I, I listened to you uh, do a, um, like a little mini session on uh, Plus One Forward. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously the constraints of the medium of that show is it's a very short show. And he kind of wants to give you a little slice of gameplay. Um, and so it was very quick. Yeah. Now, d- is there room in um, Happiest Apocalypse on Earth to have like a slow burn where the people at the park are discovering like a conspiracy and putting it together and then it crescendos over like a long period of time and a long campaign? Or is it basically like each week something kind of cataclysmic is going to happen? Well, it, it, if it's played as a one-shot, it tends to escalate very quickly. But I think in its intent is that, you know, if you're playing, if you're not at a con, which I usually am when I'm running it, yeah. Um, and if you're not constrained by time, it's best to go on the Lovecraft route where you, you're just sort of, things are weird, and they're getting weirder and weirder and weirder until the point where you are freaking out and trying to get away. And, and I, I, I think that's the best way to run it, but it's not the only way to run it. I've definitely done, you know, Kool-Aid Man breaking out of the building kind of <laughs> horror. And I've done, you know, a much slower burn horror. It, it, it lends itself to both. It depends on your table and what you want. Sure. Good. Good. Um, I think that you have really hit on something with how the environment of a theme park is intrinsically surreal, right? Yet, oftentimes it's framed in this way that psychologically you go into it understanding that it's this weird context and so you substitute this surreality for reality which on some level what could be more lovecraftian than that yeah that's a good point right i think there's a one of the reasons i went after this so hard was because uh you know we we're get we're we're fed this sort of false innocence from children's theme parks and children's entertainment that uh, never measures up. And we, we know we're not in a black and white world. We know that the world is gray and there are true horrors out there. And when you are served up with such glistening innocence, you, 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 and you just in your deep heart know that there's something else going on that you don't know about. And so I think on the surface, adults in general, We'll look at theme parks in that way or children's movies where it's like, okay, yeah, but there's something else we don't know about that's going on. <laughs> and that's the idea. That's what I'm hitting at right there was that, that beneath the surface of innocence, there's something truly vile. So, so, so tell me then, like taking, taking that 
and then just sort of riff on the way that now in the real world there's this kind of strange culture of adults that just hang out at, at theme parks all the time like what's going on there well i think there's and i can't i can't speak on their behalf i've seen them and and um even my wife and i were part of that culture for a little while really and um we you know, we, we did it because uh, of be- being an adult in a children's theme park is 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 fun. Sure. You get to do a lot of the things you can't do. And it's sort of like, you know, being, uh, you know, you're, you're able to, to, to drink, for example, or you're able to uh, do things that you wouldn't be able to do as a kid and enjoy it in a different way. Uh, but I also think there's this group of people that do it because of, of the potential of, of uh, you know, making the, making it making it horrifying in their own way. Or, or playing up the um, the uh, irony of it, and you know when you look at the uh, look at say creepy pasta, okay, um, and so you know I, I'll see I see people that will dress up as the horror version of the children's character, you know, and they're sort of reveling in that and that's you know the irony of being the evil version of that thing, or they'll celebrate the villains, you know, and and I think they're just naturally finding that dark undercurrent that's in there, and and writing it. And for their own amusement, and then Happiest Apocalypse is really targeting those kinds of people. Where you know the people that like Five Nights at Freddy's or Creepy Pasta, or that do this sort of uh, ironic fan art or dark fiction uh, based on on some of these uh, Disney stories and DreamWorks or whatever it is. That's that's really the audience here. Then then those are the people that probably attend, but for their own reasons. So, how have you been reaching people to get the word out about the game? Because this game was on Kickstarter. First of all, tell me, tell me, how did the Kickstarter go? Like, what was it like for you? Uh, it was surreal. I, I didn't know exactly what to expect. I wanted only enough to pay for the editing and some of the artwork. Um, so, I, I priced it really low. And it found it almost right away, within a couple of days. And it went, um, at the end of the day, over 10000 which was wow. amazing. And um it meant that I could do an incredible cover um, by the artist Ian Lanis, who is um, an incredible artist. And I just love the cover that he came up with. It meant that I could put more art in the interior. Um, but the experience of you asked about the experience of it, it was extremely stressful. Um, I think that it's not healthy to watch your Kickstarter every day during the Kickstarter. And you just got to let it ride. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I'm a marketer by trade, so I kind of knew the, the, you know, the lip service of what I was supposed to do. Yeah. But the reality of it, it was just like, it was just nuts. And then, you know, and it was so stressful towards the end and people start, you know, their finances change. And so they, they change their, their, their bidding and then somebody else comes in and does something different. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's just a roller coaster. I was really glad when it was over and very grateful that, uh, that the support, um, but what a stressful experience. I think. The next Kickstarter, I'm going to be a lot more zen about it. Um, I've, I'm a super backer. I, I back I back tons of things all the time. And I, I think that going forward, it's just best to let it do what it does instead of trying to analyze it and find the metrics on it and predict what's going to happen. And um, I, just, I just think it's better to be zen. How, how do you think people found out about the game? Did did you make like front page or anything, or did you get the word out on a podcast, or do you think people were just scrolling through? Here's some games. Uh, statistically, uh, most of the stuff came from Kickstarter. Most most of the traffic came from Kickstarter, which means that they were just looking around and saw it. Um, I 
I was pretty embedded in certain communities, so I, I certainly had a lot of backing up front from other from various gaming communities that I frequent. Um, I think that Rich's podcast plus one forward and the gauntlet and those guys was a huge boon for me. Um, you know, getting his seal of approval was really important in my view. Um, and one of the things that happened early on was uh, Vincent Baker backed it and and publicly said so. And so wow, that was a huge deal for me. And you, you can't I, get much better than that, right? And I, I messaged him. I said, Vincent, what are you doing now? I have to make a really good game. You know, <laughs> he's like, don't sweat it. You'll be fine. Did you know him previously? Yeah, yeah, I followed him, and of course, and uh, and a lot of the, you know, I, I should also say that in helping me construct this, uh, Dave Kazay, who wrote uh, Spirit of Seventy Seven, and his wife Jadine, were immensely helpful on navigating Kickstarter for me early on, and so I think without them, I probably would have fumbled a lot more, uh, and they they were they were great, but I so I didn't step in it in places I would have. But where did people find out? I think it was a lot of word of mouth. It's a funny idea, you know, and, and, and people yeah. will see it and immediately know what it is. I mean, I, I think when you get cerebral with marketing, people, it's harder to reach people. So it's really good to position something in a way that very clearly explains what it is. And, uh, and that's what I think one thing I did right was positioning. I was, I was risking something by doing that because it's close enough to a trademark that if uh, if Disney wanted to, they could tell me cease, desist. You think so? And I would. Yeah, it's close enough. If they could prove that they were losing revenue as a result of confusion of brand, uh, they could tell me to do that. And I would. But it's, it's walking a thin line, and I was willing to risk it. I think, um, I think that uh, they probably would never care. But I am, I am dealing with trademarks. Now, I didn't put any trademarks in the book. Right, and I was very careful of avoiding Disney. It's obviously, inferring Disney in many places, but that was an, a risk early on I took in order to make sure that it was clear what this was. Right, right, and it's satire. You know, it's not. Yeah, it's not meant to be taken as as reality. So I, I'm I'm fine on that legal argument, but that doesn't mean that they, they yeah. could still protect their brand if they oh, saw sh- if they thought it was too close. They have endless coffers to do so. Sure. You know, sure. I mean, how much money does an, a, does an Avengers movie make in a day, <laughs> you know? But if they did that, they would put me on a higher platform, you know. And, oh, yeah. And there was a movie that came out, I wish I could remember the year, uh, called Escape from Tomorrow. And it was a little indie flick. And it made it to Sundance, if I'm not mistaken. But they uh, filmed this. It was a slasher movie. Uh-huh. And they filmed the entire thing at Disney World. Oh, like with, uh, without gorilla, gorilla yeah. style. Yeah, through iPhones and stuff, and they and they they used trademark branded stuff, and uh, they made it to Sundance, and Disney didn't stop them because, well, it would give them a lot much a bigger uh, platform to market from, and they knew that. So uh, there was a lot of concerns early on from people in the community that I was I was walking that line a little too closely, but I think that was one of the reasons it worked. How did you handle that pushback? Like, I mean, as a creator, when you're when you're in that zone, like what 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 feeds you as a creator? Like, do you do you want a little bit of pushback? Does that make you feel good, or do you want people to be like, no, it's great? Uh, you know, my uh, early in my career, I was a, a, a escalation specialist for a customer service department uh, for a mobile phone company. Really? So I'm I'm really good at mitigating feedback, and and I either using it or or, or mitigating it. Uh, so I wasn't too worried about that, and I don't thrive on that. I'm not trying to be controversial. I mean, I, I, I'm farthest from. I don't really. I, I'm a safe person. I don't like to be controversial. Uh, I, I and I work in marketing, public relations, and I know I know what happens when you are controversial. 
but I, I, I also work in marketing and public relations and I know what branding works and what doesn't. And so if, uh, you know, the, for the feedback, it was just simply like, you know what, uh, if they send me a cease and desist, I'll cease and desist. They're required to do that. So I'll, I'll stop if they want me to, but I don't think they will. Um, and I'm not risking anything. I, I, I you know, I, 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 I'm still going to make your your game. I'm still going to deliver it to you. I mean, if I have to incur legal costs, that's not coming out of the fund. So uh, you know, it's fine. That's you know what this hearing all this has been fascinating. This is just like a completely fascinating like 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 facet of this of this creative process. And on some level, I think it makes you like this crazy kind of rogue gamer that like I'm. I'm even more into this part of the brand. I, I love this part of the brand. I like controversial. I think controversial is great. That's just me. <laughs> um, so you funded. Yeah, you, that was amazing. Thank you, everyone. And 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 and, and right now you're kind of like wrapping up development. And you're thinking you're going to deliver in the next two months ish? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, right now it's it's not a question of will it be done. It's a question of can the printing be done on time. Uh, so, and, and it's going really slow for my tastes, but um, I think that at, at worst, the digital copy will be ready in December and we'll be fulfilling the physical copy in January. Did, did you find that the publishing is going slower than novel publishing? Yes. And were the timetables that you had in your head from that world kind of like, did they have to undergo a, a lot of adjustment to be yeah. in this world? They didn't translate at all. I mean, I... I I didn't publish magazines before I published novels. So we're looking at uh, uh, no pictures. Yeah. You know, you can proof the text and, and you're done, right? Yeah. <laughs> but no, then I have well, to, you put it that way. I've got layout, I've got all of this stuff to do. Um, I, I can do a bit of that on my own, but I, I, you know, I got some professionals in to make it look good. Like my instruction to John Chang, who's, who you met today. I did. Uh, he was, you know, I'm going to lay this out. You make it look nice because I, I guarantee you what I do is not going to make it look nice. So, He's been working on that, and Rob Hebert's been working hard on the art, and I finally got some stuff from him today. And it's just, it, you know, artists take time. You know, it's it's hard. You know, he's got a he's got a lot of these a lot of these things to fill. They've got to find a place in the layout. Um, so the text has been done for quite some time, but this layout took way longer than I expected. That's good to know. It's good yeah. to know. So what's next for you then? What's the next project? Where do I start? What's what's what? <laughs> do you have stuff simmering? Do you have stuff right on the front mm -hmm. burner? What's going on? There's a lot going on. Um, most immediately, I've been working a lot with Two C Gaming, who's this? Uh, uh, it's run out of LA, and they do a lot of D and D Pathfinder stuff. And I'm writing, uh, finishing up this game that they kickstarted and funded, which is a third chapter of an adventure path that they're doing. It's a oh, desert okay. theme adventure path. So and I've like an just finished that. They create content with a license, kind of, or independently, but with like a for use with kind yeah. of. Okay, all right. right. Yeah, so they do. It's fifth edition, technically, not D and D. Uh, but yeah, it's an adventure path that you'll be able to get. And th they, the other two are already out, but this is the third, and, and I wrote that one. Oh wow! Lion's Vault, um, and we're in the editing phase of that. So, um, so that Kickstarter happened, and then on the uh, indie side, I'm moving towards uh, a Savage Worlds. Uh, piece and we haven't really announced this yet but uh, uh, Chris Nizak from Misdirected Mark and I are, are working on this and the idea is that we, we want we want to be we want to be the Illuminati in the conspiracy stories the agents of the Illuminati or other secret societies that are nefarious secret societies the Freemasons the Templars and, and th those are the heroes and we're going to follow their adventures as they navigate the secret world 
Uh, and we're going we're gonna to do that in Savage Worlds because there's a lot of car chases and gunfights. Nice. nice. And that's something very exciting that we're working on. Um, I also just uh, very recently uh, uh, agreed to help uh, Alan Barr, who's another designer, on his, uh, on his idea, which is going to be probably powered by the apocalypse, um, about real-life magicians in the 19th century. We might be going to 18th century. Oh. We're working on those details. Oh, man. It's all very nebulous right now. Oh, that sounds so good. <laughs> We're working on that. Fuck. And my goal on that one is to try to do it so it can be white wolfy, where you can play the characters indefinitely, and yeah. it's not a one-shot. So we're working on that. Um, I have... Oh, boy, there's so much going on. I have uh, uh, other games planned in the, in the long term. Um, I want to do more with Happiest Apocalypse on Earth. Um, and so I have some thoughts. Uh, one that I want to work on as soon as spring would be the happiest apocalypse of, uh, of Wonderland. Okay. And just go into Wonderland and kind of use translate the mechanics a, a bit over into that and kind of extend it into the fictional universe. Uh, so I'm thinking of, of other uh, adaptations from the same uh, happiest apocalypse. In terms of Kickstarters, though, uh, right now there's nothing planned. Everything's still ruminating. Where do you find the time, man? No, oh, it's you find it when you, when you want to create. You find it. Um, a lot of it happens uh, in the morning or at night, uh, lunch breaks, you know, things like that. But yeah. I, I just can't not do it. So it's not about finding time. It's about organizing my life better, yeah. So that I have the time. Well, you know what, man. I appreciate you talking. This is great. Thanks. I'm so glad you came out. Oh, dude, this was a blast. I'm really, I'm really glad you invited me because it was like I, I hit you up. I was, gonna, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna be in town for Thanksgiving, and you're like, hey, wanna play D and D? Yeah, I got a game like, coming. Yeah, man, that was great. It's so rare that I get to sit down on the, on that side of the screen and just like chuck the dice and yeah. get to postulate theories and stuff. You know, I was way off about those rat men. Completely got that one flipped yeah you came up with some good stuff though uh you know i think you attempted to save the party once or twice <laughs> well you know attempt is all you can do all right so um if anybody wants to find your stuff where do they find it where do they where do they find you best place is christopher.world i dump everything there christopher.world yeah i own right. the whole world what <laughs> <laughs> it's all mine excellent excellent well christopher gray thank you for stopping by and speaking with us and uh we look forward to all the stuff you got coming up yeah great thank you thank you so thanks for listening to that interview again as i said i know it was kind of on the older side and we have another more a couple more of these archived interviews coming up for you really soon here shadow sworn cultists um so again thank you to christopher for giving us the time and the access uh I'll be seeing Christopher here in a couple weeks when I go back out to LA for the for a little summer break, and I'm really looking forward to seeing him. So, yeah, if you live in the Los Angeles area and you're looking to uh, hang out with uh, Full Metal RPG, well, at least me, the Brendan, the Brendan Carrion part of Full Metal RPG, get at me. Hit me up on the Instagram. Hit me up on Facebook. Hit me up on the. Uh, the uh, email we got full metal RPG official at gmail.com and let me know uh, we can make some time and meet up at uh, game Empire or one of my other little places that I like to like to hang out like to frequent you know what I'm saying but I'm not gonna say his name on the air because 
then it's not my little secret anymore. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, um, now if I didn't say that Happiest Apocalypse on Earth is now out, you can get a copy of it. Find it on Christopher.world, as Chris Gray said, or you can find it on the Happiest Apocalypse on Earth webpage, or not webpage, Facebook page. So Christopher.world, or check out Facebook. You can get your copies of Happiest Apocalypse on Earth. Check that game out. Give it a shot. Support horror authors. Support the new authors in the community, the new creators, the new blood. Thank, thank you again very much. Thank you.